1: Okay, so hi, my name is Dominic and I'm going to give you a little bit of an introduction to Egyptian warfare. I'm going to specifically focus on the Late Bronze Age, which is the period roughly 1550 to 1250 BCE. I could go into much greater detail about like earlier periods and later, especially with the Hellenistic era, but I've only got 45 minutes, so I'm just going to condense everything. This will be very much sort of like an overview. Every one of the slides that I'm about to show you could basically be a lecture in itself. So if you have any questions at the end, I'll try to finish a little bit early, but feel free to ask anything. Otherwise, we will dive in a little bit. So just the various basics with an unfinished slide. Good start. So here's Egypt very broadly. It's a country, northeast Africa, but as you can see, it sort of borders on the eastern Mediterranean leading up into Canaan, Syria, Turkey, and the Middle East. Egypt's geographic position has always been excellent for trading and also for warfare and conquest. And from the very earliest parts of their history, they are going down south into what is now Sudan, and also going uh, north and east into what is now Israel, Syria, that kind of region, and generally causing havoc, stealing stuff, and taking whatever they can. So basically, through this lecture, I'm going to go through some very basic overview points, the rough history of what the era we're talking about, the weapons the Egyptians liked to use in this period, the general organization of their military. We don't know nearly as much about that as we do, say, for Rome or Greece, but we have a little bit of information, especially with how the army and the military fits into the wider society. I'll talk a little bit about mercenaries, because I know Jeremy loves that, and he would punish me if I didn't do it. Vehicles, basically the weapons that they're using in warfare. There are some surprising inclusions in there which not many people think about. Battles and strategies, again, compared to the Romans and the Greeks, we don't get as many detailed records of specific battles or their overall strategy. There's no no fancy military treatise like the Strategicon, which gives you all their information. But I'll go through a couple of ones we do know, including some... Stories that they told about battles that might have happened, which you might find surprisingly familiar based on uh, later tales from Greece and Rome. Then I'm going to touch on the sort of bigger conceptual questions like state violence, what the pharaohs are actually all about when it comes to warfare. The imperialism that they practice, particularly in Sudan and in Canaan and Syria. And the ways that they impose that fortresses, control and general expressions of their power. So that's the general introduction. What I was meaning to do on this slide is just show you the major cities. At least I got the most important one, which is Memphis. It's right here at the tip of what we call the Egyptian delta. That's the nice big green splotch in the north. That's basically the most fertile region of Egypt. 90% of their farms and vineyards, things like that, are located in there. And the rest of the country is this piddly little ribbon of green, that, you know, they did irrigate and they farmed as intensively as they could, but for the most part, they are dealing with a very desert landscape. Not a hell of a lot of natural resources, except for things like copper and gold in the hills, but that's a very good reason for them to go out and crack heads to take whatever they want from their neighbors. The other little red dot <clears throat> is a city that's called P. Rameses. I'll make sure to add it to the PowerPoints, which I'll give to Jeremy later to update on the canvas, so at least you'll get that later. But this little second red dot is a city that develops roughly around the time period that I'm talking about, and it becomes one of the major capitals of kings like Ramesses the Great, who are quite famous. So basics of this historical period. We are dealing with the Late Bronze Age. This roughly coincides with an era that we historians call the New Kingdom. There are three major kingdoms of pharaonic history. The Old Kingdom, when they're building all the pyramids. The Middle Kingdom, which is not so famous, but when they're making amazing poetry and monuments and art, some of the finest cultural stuff. And the New Kingdom, where they go out and slaughter as many people as they can and generally act like dicks. (laughs) As I said, roughly 1550 to 1150 BCE. Just take that as a guideline. It's not specific. The major feature of the military technology for this period is bronze. So we're not dealing with iron nearly to the same extent as you'll be familiar with with the Greeks and the Romans. The Egyptians did know about iron. It does show up occasionally in their texts and archeological remains. This example here is a very nice dagger from the tomb of Tutankhamun, which was discovered in 1922. Everyone knows Tutankhamun, he has the pretty uh, golden mask. But this dagger is made of iron that apparently comes from a meteorite. And this was fashioned into a nice dagger that was placed with his mummy, specifically wrapped up in all the bandages. So he seems to have really liked this one, and you can imagine why. The Egyptians are not famous for using wheeled vehicles. They did use it for chariots, but since they have the Nile and the Mediterranean, the primary mode of transportation that they use is boats. And we'll come into that a little bit later. All right, so as I said, New Kingdom, roughly 1550 to 1150. If you're looking at the history of Egypt overall, this is the period known as Dynasties 18, 19, and 20, The dynasties are just the royal families or houses, uh, lineages. Some famous names from this period are Hatshepsut, a woman who rules as a king. People call her a queen, but we should actually call her a king because she uses that specific term, king of Egypt. Thutmose III, uh, Hatshepsut's stepson slash nephew. A little bit of incest going on there, but don't worry about it. (laughs) Tutankhamun, very famous, uh, not the most prolific warrior. He died at about 19, so he never quite got the chance to be a formidable military captain. But his tomb is excellent because it was discovered 99% intact, and it had a whole bunch of military equipment in it, like chariots, swords, bows, weapons, and things like that. Then the last two names, Seti I and Ramesses II. This is a father-son duo, and they are really big on the conquest and the imperialism aspect. Really emphasize going out and taking as much as they can from neighboring lands. The statue in question is Thutmose III. He's a very pretty chap. His mummy basically looks exactly like this. He has the same little smug grin. This guy is known for being an extremely successful military campaigner and leader. So I get the sense that he was kind of had a big ego in some respects. All right, weapons. So I've given you the basics here. You don't need to remember the names. They're just there for flavor. You've got your spears, very basic, mostly wood and bronze. Sometimes uh, stone would be used for the spearhead. The name of a spear is a genit. That C-H is a ch, like a lengthened H. You've got your swords and axes, which are both used by the, called by the same term, which is kopesh or kepesh. Generally bronze with a nice wooden handle. You've got your bows or pestjet, These come in two flavors, which are simple bows, just a nice piece, a single piece of wood, and composite, where they're kind of uh, layered, and they go together with arrows, usually made of wood or bronze or sometimes bone. We find lots of arrowheads, particularly in settlements, and they come in all flavors of stone, metal, and bone, all of which will ruin your day if they hit you. So don't don't try not to think of stone or bone as any less effective as a weapon. We tend to get caught up in the you know, special technology, technological properties of things like iron and how useful it is. But bone will still cause a great deal of damage if someone shoots it at you at high velocity. So bows are pestjet and arrows are achau. The Egyptians, for most of their history, at least up until this period, seem to have treated bows and arrows as the default weapon of an Egyptian soldier. The word for an archer uh, is achau, that's the exact same word they use for soldiers generally and people who make weapons. So when we think of the Egyptian army, we should probably think of them as really heavy on the bows and arrows. They try to take their enemies down at a long distance or scare them off so that they can then uh, lead the assault with infantry and chariots. The mace and the club, still very effective weapon, usually wood with stone. We have examples of maces from the very earliest periods of the Egyptian kingdom, around 3000 BC. They're called hedge. And the association between maces and violence and treasure is wrapped up in the fact that the word for mace can also be the word for silver or the word for treasure. So basically they tie the weapon up with the treasure that they're able to get using that weapon. So Egyptian weapons are very deeply entwined with their conception of war and the ways that they go out and view the outside world. As I said, these weapons can be brutally effective, even though they appear to be more primitive, quote unquote. We have human remains like skeletons from archeological sites and mummies, including some of the royal ones. And many of them have terribly horrible wounds in their heads and their bodies. There's one mummy from a king who who seems to have died in battle his head is covered in axe wounds. He has a very deep spear gash going through his torso. I don't know if anyone watches House of the Dragon, but basically he looks like Viserys Targaryen did at the end last episode. Just absolutely wrecked. So these things would will, will ruin your day. Crushed bones from maces are very common in skeletons and archaeological sites. And we also have evidence for them very carefully and expertly inserting spears into a body as a punishment, somehow avoiding all the internal organs while severely punishing people. The Egyptian pharaohs and their military apparatus were not nice, and we'll come into that a little bit later. So yeah, the basic gist of this thing is that even though we tend to emphasize iron as you know the great killing or weapon, the Egyptians were extremely skilled at wrecking other people. OK, organization. As I said, we do not know nearly as much about the Egyptian army and its organization compared to later cultures like the Greeks, the Romans, even the Persians. But what we do know is that for most of their history, there was minimal separation between the army, quote-unquote, and the rest of society. There weren't that many full-time soldiers. We do know that the pharaohs kept a sort of bodyguard who did do seem to been professional. Call them praetorians, if you like. But for the most part, they seem to have raised their armies when they required. Think of more like an early medieval system. You call up your troops when it's time to go out on a campaign. This is kind of captured in the fact that the word for soldier is mesha, but that can also translate as infantry or just workers. When they're doing things like building the pyramids, for instance, we have have records of them gathering the mesha, which is just a gang of people who are going to go labor on something. Or they can gather the mesha to go out and kill. Another factor to consider is that the Egyptians, at least in terms of their military leaders, their commanders, not the pharaohs, I'm talking about the non-royal people, these chaps, these generals tend to emphasise different traits compared to conquest and victory. Quite often, you'll find that military commanders only treat their army roles as second or even third or fourth in their hierarchy of titles. The ones that they tend to emphasize are titles like scribe or educated, literate man, bureaucrat, any kind of position they have related to temples. That seems broadly to have been more important to them than I was in command of soldiers. Bearing that in mind, 90% of the sources we have for ancient Egyptian society do come from that literate elite Wealthy landowners, people with access to power, people who are friends with the pharaoh or part of the government and the bureaucratic apparatus, and they tend to have a vested interest in presenting themselves in certain ways, so that probably does you know, warp our perception of these figures slightly. But as a good sort of illustration, this chap on the left, Heb, he was an extremely prominent army commander during the reign of Tutankhamun. We know that he did lead military campaigns. I'll show you later. He went out and plundered enemy lands. But the the best monuments that come from his career show him as a scribe. Like this one, he sits and he's writing a hymn to the god of writing, Thoth or Jehuti. Even though he was a successful military commander, he seems to have tried to, he wanted to present himself more as a learned, wise figure, at least for the sake of posterity. This chap Horemheb actually later went on to become pharaoh himself. And during that time, he did all the usual things that a pharaoh did. But we have a beautiful record of his pre-royal career, including statues like this. Going along with the sort of minimal separation between army and society and that sort of literate elite bias within the sources, the texts that survive from ancient Egypt describing soldiers don't have much nice to say about them. Not in terms of their character, but just in terms of how unpleasant their life could be. Soldiers or weapon makers would be forced to go out on long marches into the hill countries, out into the desert, you know, no water, the sun's beating down, everyone's grumpy. They're going going along for minimal pay, not much reward, and by the time they get home, they are absolutely wrecked. So again, broadly speaking, the soldier's life was not exactly a high high prestige one in ancient Egypt, at least not in this period, and although our sources do tend to favor the literate elite, the scribes sitting at home, counting, planning, we do get a sense of the sort of difficulties that a soldier would lead during their life. All right, mercenaries. Egyptians did use mercenaries throughout their history. The most famous ones tend to come from the south in Nubia. We use the term mercenaries just as a sort of broad category, but we don't really have much evidence for them actually, you know, paying these people. They might they might have enjoyed, you know, the usual benefits of an army. They get to share in the plunder. If they serve well, they might be rewarded by the king or by the generals. But we don't have the nice fancy transactions of the pharaoh hiring mercenaries or anything like that. So as I said, we have the archers from Nubia. These people do tend do show up a lot in Egyptian records and they seem to be Quite a highly uh, skilled group specializing in this kind of warfare. We also have Mycenaeans who show up around this time, approximately 1290-1300 BCE. They are very, very poorly attested, but they do seem to be there. We have papyrus that show troops who appear to be Mycenaeans wearing their fancy boar tusk helmets, the sort that show up in Mycenaean graves. And then we have a group called the Sea Peoples who are quite famous to many who are interested in this period of history. The Sea Peoples are famous for absolutely ruining most of the late Bronze Age societies, about uh, 1180 BCE. But for at least 100 years before that, they were showing up as kind of mercenaries in the Egyptian army. They show up in the army of Ramesses II or Ramesses the Great, and they're distinguished from their Egyptian counterparts. This little picture down the bottom has a group of soldiers with horns on their helmets and then on the left there's a group of soldiers who just have long hair and carrying shields. The ones on the left are the Egyptians, the ones with the horned helmets are the sea peoples who are serving in the army of the pharaoh. So the Egyptians do recognise that these are a distinctive group, they treat them like that artistically and it gives a sense that that the pharaohs are looking around them for useful groups who can serve in their armies. All right, vehicles. The main vehicle is the ship. People tend to think of Egypt they think of chariots. It's actually the boat. The Egyptians have a giant-ass river in the middle of their country. Most of their history, they are using ships as their primary means of conveyance. They will do fighting, ship to ship, and they even have what might be termed marines, soldiers who seem to specialize in this kind of warfare. They're not doing the sort of uh, ramming thing that you might find in Greek warfare, but they are pulling up alongside their enemy, Leaping over onto the other side and killing as many as they can. The Egyptians would also, you know, station archers on these boats to just rain down enemies on their foes. And most importantly, they would use the boats to transport armies as quickly as possible to crisis points. In particular, when the Egyptians start moving up into the eastern Mediterranean, Canaan, uh, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, that kind of region. They're often using great fleets of ships to send armies and marching inland from there. So we shouldn't think of the Egyptian armies really marching through the desert that much. They will do it when they have to, but obviously it's not ideal. If they're going out on campaign, they prefer to sail up to a friendly city, unload their ships, and then go from there. But then, then there are the chariots, and the chariots are particularly prominent during the Late Bronze Age, during this era. They're usually made of wood with leather and bronze to kind of uh, tie them together and fit out the little um, bits. People tend, at least in popular imagination, especially from Hollywood, we tend to see chariots, you know, charging into ranks of the enemy's soldiers. This doesn't seem to be so much how the Egyptians used them. From what we can understand based on their texts and reading their artistic imagery, they seem to have used their chariots more like mobile archer platforms. They would charge occasionally, but probably only when the enemy was already scattered and demoralized. For the most part, the chariots are more like sports cars. They're racing around the battlefield trying to get behind the foe. And the whole time, the charioteer, there's usually two guys on a chariot, one of them driving, one of them with a bow and arrow, and they're usually trying to shoot arrows into the, into the foe from all sides. We do have physical examples found in tombs, both royal and non-royal. And I'll show you in a minute, um, archaeologists have reconstructed chariots. You know, i built replicas and taken them out um, to test how they actually work. And they're surprisingly effective. Oh, there's a chariot. There's the point. So you've got your basic idea of a two-horse chariot, one guy driving, holding a shield, and the other guy, in this case the king, riding with their bow and arrow to shoot weapons. We do have horse riding occasionally, but they seem to be more messengers rather than, you know, knights or anything like that. But they do show up during this period. So the Egyptians were familiar with horse riding, they had figured it out, but it just wasn't their primary means of transport or warfare.
0: History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. By contrasting both the experiences of contemporaries and the conclusions of historians, grey history dives into the detail and unpacks one of the most important and disputed events in human history. From a revolution based on hope and liberty to its descent into the infamous reign of terror, there's plenty to discuss and plenty of grey to explore. One can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So if you're looking for your next long-form, binge-worthy history podcast, one recommended by universities and loved by enthusiasts, then check out Grey History, the French Revolution today. Or simply search for the French Revolution.
1: Alright, so I'll quickly fly through a few battles. As I said, we don't have the same kind of detailed records as we would for, you know, the Romans, we don't have the nice tales of Caesar and his exhaustively detailed accounts, but we do have a few that show up through this period of Egyptian history. One of the famous ones is the Battle of Megiddo. Megiddo is a site in modern-day Israel. Uh, it's quite famous for fans of the Bible as the mythical place where the last battle will occur, and that's, it's called in Hebrew Ha-Megiddo or Armageddon, so that's where the word comes from. But we do know that the Egyptians went and absolutely wrecked Megiddo once around 1479 BCE. A king named Thutmose III, the chap I showed you earlier with the nice smug statue. Early in his reign, he got word that an enemy coalition was gathering to oppose him because they thought he was going to be a weak king and he wouldn't be strong enough. So, of course, he gathered his troops, hurried off to uh, the Near East, And he very cleverly uh, took his army through territory that no no sane person would do. Took them to a narrow canyon, which obviously would be a death trap, but he did it so quickly and effectively, and the gods were on his side. So he surprised the enemy, utterly routed them as quickly as they could. The Egyptian army surged forth, smashed up the coalition. Then the Egyptian troops kind of got distracted by the enemy camp. They started looting it. And as a result, the enemy leadership and many of their soldiers were able to escape to the nearby fortress town of Megiddo. And this forced Thutmose to lay siege to the city for seven months. So it's an object lesson in keeping your troops under control when you're on the battlefield. If they get distracted by the nice plunder, you lose a swift and easy victory. But Thutmose III is one of the most prolific... Is that the right word? One of the most successful of Egyptian warrior kings, he leads at least 16 major campaigns into Canaan and Syria, allegedly routing his enemy every time. Take that with a grain of salt. But he does seem to be extraordinarily active in doing this. This is Megiddo today. The site carried on operating as a town right through into the late Iron Age. So the the remains you see here are not the ones Tutmos would have seen, but this is the general landscape. This is the sort of thing the Egyptians were up against, and they had to besiege it for seven months before the enemy finally surrendered. From the story, you get the sense that maybe the Egyptians weren't so skilled with siege, but we actually do know that they practiced it. We have images from tombs that even show them using siege towers. This one just up here against an enemy wall. Kind of looks like a sort of siege tower you'd find in a video game. A bunch of troops climbing up on the inside to leap over the top and slaughter their enemies. We also have images of them using battering rams, which mostly seem to be large uh, wooden logs that they're carrying up against the gates and smashing against, but if it works, it works. Obviously, they used ladders, and we have, again, images of those from tombs and temples, scaling the walls and wrecking house. That being said, overall, the Egyptian artistic and textual records do suggest that they mainly favoured a direct open battle if they could achieve it, Bear in mind that a direct open battle looks much nicer in art on a temple wall, so take, you know, there's an element of uh, bias in that account. But it does seem like the Egyptian pharaohs preferred to surprise their enemy, marching faster than the enemy expected into their country and overwhelming them as quickly as they could. So, in that respect, there is a degree of strategy that we can uh, figure out from Egyptian texts and imagery. All right, now I'm going to quickly go through a little story that might be historical fiction or fictionalized history, either one. It's called the Capture of Joppa, and Joppa is a town in Israel, modern-day Jaffa or Jaffo. It takes place again during the reign of Thutmose III, that very successful pharaoh. His general, a named, man named Jehuti or Thoth, is in charge of a siege, the siege of Joppa. The enemy is resisting. The Egyptians can't break in for some reason. So Jehuti decides on a cunning plan. He gathers several hundred baskets, large wickerwork baskets, and he hides his soldiers inside. He sends a message to the enemy uh, rulers saying, we give up, you win. Please take this gift. It's full of treasure from Egypt. Have it. We will be on our way. All the best. So naturally, the locals bring the baskets into the city, celebrate, the soldiers leap out, fully armed, and start ruining everything. So, here's an extract from the story. You can find it in a book called Ancient Egyptian Literature by Miriam Lichtheim if you want the full thing. It kind of goes on much longer in more detail. Basically, Jahuti smuggles his soldiers into the baskets. The soldiers are armed with weapons and ropes and uh, handcuffs. And Jahuti tells them when you're inside the city, leap out, surprise them, and take over the town. Surprisingly, these baskets actually do survive. We have examples from Egyptian tombs which, conceivably, you could fit a person inside. And this particular basket, which is in the Metropolitan Museum of Art, is from roughly the same period of Thutmose III and General Jehuti. So we can imagine them bringing them inside, kind of like a mythical Trojan horse. Whether whether tales like this were the inspiration for uh, the account at Troy is debatable, obviously. I'm sure everyone tried this at some point or another but it's an early example of these kind of motifs and how they fit into larger narratives of late Bronze Age warfare. Surprisingly, Jehuti was a real person. His tomb was discovered in the 1800s, full of nice, pretty, golden objects that were gifts to him from the pharaoh. The tomb was subsequently lost because 1800s explorers were idiots. But we do still have the items. Most of them are in the Louvre, as is tradition, And they contain texts telling how the pharaoh really cared for Jehuti as a servant and respected him and rewarded him. In this particular instance, we have a a golden bowl and a golden bangle, both of which were given to Jehuti by Tutmos III as a favor. And Jehuti has titles like the overseer of the northern foreign lands. Basically, he is the supreme commander in Canaan and Syria. Jehuti also, as usual, emphasizes his role as a scribe. Again, he's not talking about himself too much as a successful commander, but again, that's that kind of elite culture filtering through. No matter what he does on the battlefield, his greatest honor is that the Pharaoh, the living God, rewarded him and praised him. But obviously this raises the question whether the tale of the capture of Joppa happened in some form or other. That's entirely speculative, unfortunately. Unless somebody goes and excavates the town of Joppa and finds a whole bunch of baskets with (laughs) weapons inside. Probably not going to happen, but you never know. Now we come to Kadesh, and Kadesh happens approximately 200 years after Thutmose III, during the reign of Ramesses II. Compared to Megiddo, Kadesh is not nearly as glorious or successful, it's almost a debacle. Ramesses II is probably one of the most famous pharaohs because of his enormous monuments all over the country, and he's often called Ramesses the Great. Personally, I view him more as Ramesses the Overconfident, slash Ramesses the Slightly Inept. The Battle of Kadesh is a very good illustration of this. He almost loses an entire army in battle against the Hittites because he rushes into the situation without properly scouting or preparing the way. He goes in with a small section of his army, reinforcements are far away, and he nearly gets himself killed, despite that, he still proclaims it as a great victory when he gets home, puts it on multiple temples of him supposedly slaughtering the enemy single-handedly. in fact, reading between the lines, we figured out that we can figure out that he barely escaped, escaped with his army intact. The result of the Battle of Kadesh was that. Egyptian influence in that region was curbed significantly for some time after the battle. Ramesses was able to make a peace treaty with the Hittites, and over the coming centuries, later rulers would re-establish Egyptian supremacy, and the Hittites eventually collapsed in the face of a Sea People's invasion, but that's another story. So the Battle of Kadesh starts happily enough. Ramesses' army is marching into Syria, and they're approaching the town called Kadesh, which is a fortified city. We get a little bit of information about the Egyptian tactics and their battlefield approach here. The Egyptian army is divided up into four regiments or divisions, and they're named after some of the major deities of their uh, religion. Amun, the hidden one, the kind of cosmic everything. Ra, the sun god, another one of these cosmic everythings. Seth, the god of destruction, the god who protects Ra generally gets a bad rap in popular culture, but Seth is actually kind of a badass. (laughs) And P'tah, one who gets kind of overlooked, but P'tah is another of these creator deities who created the universe just by thinking and speaking it. The point is, the the major Egyptian divisions, maybe a couple of thousand men each, are named after these major deities who are either supreme overlords of the cosmos or at the very least, really good warriors and killers. Ramesses' army also includes auxiliaries from Canaanite vessels that he picks up along the way as he's approaching Kadesh. So he's coming up near to the city, and what do you know, the Egyptian army captures two Hittites, two scouts who are moving ahead to figure out what's happening. The scouts tell Ramesses that the enemy army is far away near Aleppo, another town in Syria. So Ramesses takes that at face value gathers one division and his bodyguard and hurries on up the road, hoping to capture Kadesh before the Hittites reach the area. Surprise, surprise, the Hittite king was actually near Kadesh. He was camped just behind the city, where you wouldn't necessarily see them, and they surge onto the battlefield unexpectedly. The Hittite chariots break into the Egyptian camp. Ramesses is caught utterly on the back foot, and things go downhill from there. So in this nice little picture, which is a line drawing from the temple scenes, we have Ramesses receiving the news that the Hittite army is approaching. In the top left there, his chariot is ready because he's about to go onto the battlefield. Just below the chariot, his high officials and his generals are saying, telling him what's happening. He's got his nice fan bearers behind him keeping cool. Down below, we have the Hittite scouts, and they are receiving their just punishment for deceiving the Egyptian pharaoh. Take that how you will. I say that was fair play on their behalf, but Ramesses is obviously not thinking the same way, so he has them beaten to death. This is what's happening behind Ramesses. The Hittite army breaks through the Egyptian lines, surges into the camp, slaughters almost an entire division and absolutely wrecks house. While Ramesses is receiving the news very calmly in the left, the Hittites are riding around. You do have Egyptian charioteers, Uh, particularly in the top center there, just uh, from the line, who are trying to fight back against the Hittites. But we know from Ramesses' own textual account that during this part of the battle, it was effectively chaos. So the Hittites charge and break one entire division, which is the Ra Division. They surge into the Egyptian camp, which is the Amun Division. Meanwhile, the other two divisions, Seth and Patar, are still some ways away on the road hurrying towards the battlefield. Ramesses sends messengers off saying, For the love of God, come help me. I'm nearly overrun. But then, allegedly, Ramesses hopped onto his chariot and went forth at a gallop, and he rode straight into the middle of the Hittite army. There were 2,500 of them. He was by himself, didn't even have his bodyguard or his charioteer, did everything by himself, slaughtered a whole bunch of them, and managed to rout the enemy by himself. Total bullshit, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> But this is the version that he put on temples all throughout Egypt. And during the 19th uh, century, many European scholars read these at face value and started viewing Ramesses as a great warrior king. That's how he acquired the name, like Ramesses the Great in pop culture. Generally, he's not not that great, at least when it comes to the warfare. He's not uh, nearly as successful as his forebears. This is a nice painting from the 19th century giving Ramesses' side of the the battle. I don't know why there's a lion there, but maybe there might be in the text a reference to him bringing pet lions. We do know they did that sometimes on campaign. One of the earlier pharaohs was very impressed when he went into Syria and he found elephants and he went out elephant hunting. So that might be a feature that shows up in the text, but I can't remember it. Basically, it's based on this image from one of Ramesses' temples, where he's riding by himself into the enemy lines and routing them. So those are a couple of the major battles that we know about from pharaonic history. Obviously, we know from texts detailing campaigns, and we know uh, from letters sent by foreign rulers to the pharaohs that a great deal of other fights were happening throughout the region at this time. But we only get nice, detailed accounts for a couple of them, like Megiddo and Kadesh which is really frustrating for historians trying to reconstruct the military aspects of their society because the texts they provide are mostly there to glorify the pharaoh, to convey an idea that he is the ever-victorious warrior. So archaeologists and historians have been working really hard to reconstruct the other aspects of military society by digging up sites and uncovering new texts or images and reading between the lines of what the pharaohs are telling them to try and get to the actual details. So it's a work in progress, as all ancient history is. All right, state violence. I'll cover this very quickly, but you'll get the idea. So essentially, the pharaohs are brutal military rulers. They are not nice people. Again, Egypt has this pop culture image of, you know, palm trees, the Nile. It's all very sunny, beautiful pyramids and things. No, the pharaohs are absolutely horrendous when it comes to warfare. They will lead... Campaigns and raids into foreign lands on the slimmest pretext, sometimes they will claim there's a rebellion, but I'm always suspicious that anything is actually happening. I think most of the time they just wanted plunder, booty, or influence among foreigners. They will gladly boast of capturing all the women, all the children, all the cattle, and all good things that the enemy belongs, bringing it back to Egypt. When they defeat an enemy, some pharaohs will throw prisoners into pits and then set them on fire Burning them alive. There's kings like Amunhotep II, who I mentioned earlier. Not nice people, frankly. If you met most of the pharaohs, you would not like them as individuals. They would also hang decapitated bodies from their ships and from temples. Again, Amunhotep II was very proud of this, but we have other references to it. And during the aftermaths of battles, soldiers would would cut off the right hand of enemy soldiers to prove that they had, you know, how many they had killed in battle. And we have images from temples of them dumping these hands in front of the king and the gods to show how successful the battle was and how victorious they were. And this is real. We have, archaeologists have found pits at, in cities and archaeological sites full of severed hands. They actually did this. It's not just a motif. So we have a very clear idea of the extreme brutality that the pharaohs could pun- perpetrate on their enemies. <clears throat> Another aspect to be very aware of with these, we tend to get images or sort of narratives of the the king as the glorious conquering warrior. A lot of this is really bound up with their religious ideals. The role of the gods in Egyptian warfare is not discussed enough. But essentially, during the Late Bronze Age, the Egyptians start to develop a motif or narrative where the god himself will tell the king to go forth on conquest, basically like an ancient crusade. In in this image, we get uh, the god Amun-Ra, just there on the right, who is handing a sword towards King Seti I. And the sword will have a text alongside it saying, you know, this is the sword of victory. Go forth and conquer and bring it back. And so the, the pharaoh has done so, and he's brought a whole bunch of prisoners from different lands. And they got cropped out, unfortunately, but he's about to hit them with a mace and just crack their skulls in. So basically, we can imagine an extremely brutal form of kind of divine offering, where the king king would bring prisoners to maybe the temple gates just in front, and he might execute prisoners as an offering to the god. And as a demonstration to everyone watching, do not mess with this guy. The point is, this is all deeply tied up with their conception of the world and the gods in particular. The gods rule Egypt, Egypt rules their neighbors, and everyone should obey or else the pharaoh will come for them. Finally, we have the concepts of Egyptian imperialism, a very rapidly developing field in Egyptian history and study. One of the major expressions of imperialism as a concept is what they did in Sudan or Nubia. The Egyptians, from the very earliest periods of their histories, would raid, attack, and invade this region, and then they would colonize it for long periods of time. During their raids, they would depopulate entire regions, again taking away the women, children, cattle, goats, all the uh, food and all the uh, possessions they have. And they would send those captives as slaves to farms in Egypt. We have references to huge populations, 10,000, 20,000 being shipped down the Nile to work on estates for the king. And once they would taken over the region, they would start to build enormous fortresses that would control certain parts of the river, especially where it was narrow they would even send foreign families to different regions so for example if they captured uh, local if they captured families up in Canaan they might ship them down to Nubia to live and to serve the pharaoh basically acting as a colonizing population to civilize quote unquote the land and then they also tried to civilize the local leaders we have evidence of the egyptians taking the sons of foreign rulers bringing them back to the court as hostages And they would educate them in the Egyptian way of life, teach them to speak and read Egyptian, give them Egyptian names, and then send them back to rule on their behalf. We get expressions of this, like in the tomb of Horemheb, that chap I introduced earlier, where Egyptian officers are beating captives from Sudan or Nubia. The Egyptians liked to stereotype their enemies, so they give the Nubians a very distinctive appearance that, if you're familiar with 19th century imperialism, will be quite familiar. And while these soldiers are beating their prisoners, for no reason as far as I can tell from the texts, Horamheb is receiving gold from the king as a reward for his exploits. So basically, the Egyptians were very skilled imperialists. They did it throughout their history, they were extremely accomplished at it, and they managed to establish colonial enterprises that lasted for centuries. So even though people forget about it today, the Egyptians were in their own way as good at this, or should I say as effective It's not a good thing, but they were as effective and skilled at imperialism in their region as the British were, essentially, and they did the same sort of things. So again, everyone has a nice, pretty image of Egypt as a peaceful, restful land. Their military apparatus was brutal, and they were proud of that. These are their fortresses. Some of them could be absolutely large. The Egyptians are kind of overlooked as fortress builders, but they really were quite skilled in developing early castles. We have examples from particularly Sudan with massive walls, deep moats, and multiple layers of fortification. Here's an artist's reconstruction. Basically, these are many cities with great towers and bastions from which the Egyptian soldiers would go forth to plunder and exploit. There's a digital reconstruction, just giving a sense of the scale, how big these fortifications are. And many of these sites have been thoroughly documented archaeologically, so we have a very good idea of what they looked like. In summary, I'll just run through. Weaponry, wood, bronze, and stone, but don't sleep on that. Those are brutally effective when used properly. Not so much evidence for a professional military or um, long-standing army like what you might find in Rome. Vehicles, ships are the number one vehicle, but chariots are a great battlefield weapon. Tactics and strategies. Kind of a preference for open battles and preemptive strikes but they would also use sieges and whenever they were whenever they were victorious they would punish their enemies brutally they built fortresses enslaved enemies and assimilated local elites to establish and perpetuate their rule and all of this was glorified through art and religious iconography if you want to learn more I've got some references there as jeremy said i do run a podcast about this I've been doing it for about 10 years. It is stupidly detailed, and I'm kind of regretting that. Point is, I hope you've enjoyed this. If you have any questions, feel free to come up. Um, I'll give the updated PDF uh, PowerPoint to Jeremy, so it has references if you want to learn more.
0: Thank you. What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome?
1: What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen and Jenny from
0: Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective.
1: Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts.